What's up? Happy Wednesday. I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rides podcast. We have a loaded show today. The busiest man in America right now, probably, maybe even including the President of the United States, Brody Miller, LSU beat writer of The Athletic, joins us. He wrote a fantastic story on Sunday that really epitomized and encapsulated well the downfall of Ed Orgeron. It was incredibly well reported. I would encourage you to go read that on The Athletic. Maybe pause the interview, go read it, and uh, get caught up on the situation if you're not privy to it at all. But uh, of course, we got into a lot of the LSU saga involving Ed Orgeron, you know, and so a lot of these previews, it's a lot of me asking questions about the game and all of, you know, LSU's offense or whatever the opponent's offense is and how it matches up with Ole Miss. There was pretty much, no, that not pretty much. There was zero of that. Uh, I mean, I, that's just not really the storyline heading into the week. I got into a lot of different angles of uh, Ed Orgeron's departure what his legacy is at the school, how this came to be, and when the beginning of the end actually began. And uh, I don't think there's any better person to talk to than Brody about it because he's about as plugged in as anyone uh, to that situation. So really enjoyed the conversation. Can't say thanks enough to Brody for the time because he is a uh, he's a busy man these days. It's kind of kind of covering the circus right now down there in Baton Rouge. So he was gracious enough to give us uh, about 35, 40 minutes of his time. So I think you'll really enjoy that interview. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Fix. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Need to check these guys out. They had a 12-unit weekend on NASCAR. I believe that's after an 11-unit weekend. Sorry, 11.45 this weekend, 12 last weekend. That's 23.45 by my math over two weekends in NASCAR, plus 4.9 units on NCAA, uh, college football last Saturday and went right at 500 in the NFL, but are kind of, not kind of, they're absolutely crushing on the NFL. They had a 7-0 and week, a 9-1 and week. Uh, you need to check these guys out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. If you're into sports betting, you don't want to go off your own knowledge. That's going to lead to the man texting you on Sunday nights, asking where the scratch is. Uh, you don't want that. You already got the scaries. You want to be texting him, asking where your uh, where your bar. Uh, I don't know. It's getting the holiday season. Get holiday season. Gift money is coming from. So Skybox is going to do that at a more consistent rate than your own knowledge. I can promise you that. You need to check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. You can do season passes, month-long, sports-centric. You go all sports. I'd recommend just doing the year-long all sports. It's going to pay for itself and a lot, lot more. I can promise you that. But whatever you're comfortable uh, choosing, whatever you're comfortable price range-wise, I promise they're going to have a picks package for you. You can even try a daily pass. 10 bucks, just check them out for a day on a college football Saturday and Sunday, make some money, and then they're going to suck you back in for hopefully a year-long pass because Skybox prints money. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY and get 20% off any purchase. Promo code R-I-P-P-E-E. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg if you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter. That's rippyrights.substack. Com, you get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to kickstart your football watching Saturday or Sunday. And all you got to do is subscribe to my freeze new newsletter that you get three to five times a week, and you get discounted beats. I'll let you decide which one is better there. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. They've got all kinds of stuff. Lane Train Special, Keith Carter Special, Bacon Wrap Filets, all kinds of delicious sausages, 
uh, pork, seafood. They've got all kinds of awesome, awesome stuff. Greg wants to make your grilling experience better. Don't go to Kroger. Go to LV's. It's the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Oxford is lucky to have it. Okay. So I don't really have a plan to open for today. Uh, Brody's interview was kind of in that medium range to where I didn't know if there's enough time for it. And then I was kind of like, I need one. I don't really have some, any sort of planned open today, but I figured I would hit just a couple of different topics real quick that seem to be uh, on the minds of the message board community, as well as Ole Miss fans. Uh, I don't think we've spoken to one another. I say spoken to one another. I have not done a podcast uh, since Sunday with Weldon. And since then Lane Kiffin at his Monday press conference, and he mentioned out of the blue that Matt Corral, he doesn't feel great about his chances of playing this weekend after him getting kind of beat up last weekend. I think he has a knee thing. I don't want to say that incorrectly. I'll make sure to double check on that. But anyway, Matt Corral's banged up. People freaked out. Then it became, oh, is he playing mind games here? I would, I don't know if mind games is the right word, but Lane Kiffin has been completely silent on injuries all year. That's just kind of his policy. He does not discuss injuries. I mean, it's, I mean, a guy could have, I mean, a guy could have like a, I don't, I don't want to go too far overboard, but I mean, a guy could lose a limb. And if you ask Kiffin about it, he'd be like, yeah, we're hopefully plays next week. That's just kind of his answer to everything. He doesn't get into injuries, but now all of a sudden he's going to volunteer that his quarterback might not play in this game really without anyone asking him. Hmm. And then completely after. Immediately after, I should say, he tweets out a couple articles that, you know, in typical in Lane Kiffin fashion, after he does a press conference or something, he likes to tweet out the headline that kind of gets not aggregated. Some of them are aggregation sites, some of them are actual newspapers, but he'll just tweet out what Lane Kiffin said after trash delay, comma, Ole Miss went over Tennessee. So he did that after the press conference uh, on Monday, and one of them was Lane Kiffin, quote, doesn't feel good about Matt Corral's injury status. Clearly, there's some sort of gamesmanship going on here. I do not doubt that Matt Corral's beat up. He had 30 carries. He had the injury late in the game where Luke Altmaier had to come in. I'm not doubting that he's hurting and banged up. I would think they would not run him 30 times again. That's just a hunch. Um, but I, I just have a feeling that he will probably play in this game. I know I'm not breaking any news there. I think most of you could probably read in between the lines a little bit. Um, but I guess we'll kind of see as the uh, week goes on. But I just have a hard time having this whole thing pass the traditional smell test of Lane Kiffin shooting everyone completely straight after his entire policy, uh, really from the entire time he's been here, is not to discuss injuries at all. And then all of a sudden he just offers up that his quarterback not, might not play and then is tweeting headlines about it. Something about that doesn't add up, but maybe maybe I am just being conspiracy theorist here. I don't think I'm being a conspiracy theorist here. But anyway, I guess we'll kind of see how, how that goes as the week goes on. I'll be interested to see if he practiced – uh yesterday and if he practices on wednesday but i just have a hard time believing he's not going to try to give it a go i don't know anything i'm just some guy with the newsletter and a podcast these days that sells grease as my day job i so i i don't have any sort of inside information there i just have a hunch uh because but judging based on the way corral talked about his injury on saturday look things can change after that right i mean you know 24 hours after a game injuries are often either not what they seem or absolutely what they seem and worse a lot in a lot of cases, but the way he talked about it Saturday, I even think Ed Orgeron in his press conference was asked about it. And he thought, you know, with the way 
you know, him knowing Lane and him knowing Corral, I'm paraphrasing here, he thinks that they're probably he's probably going to play. So I have a hunch that Corral probably tries to suit it up. I, maybe you see a lot more of Plumlee at quarterback to kind of supplement some of the running stuff. I don't know. I guess that's a possibility. I figure you would have seen that already if it were, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, and maybe they try to do some different things to limit him from having to run and having to take hits. I definitely think they're going to do that to some degree, but to supplement that with something else, because Ole Miss is banged up. I don't know what Braylon Sanders' status is. Of course, they're going to be without Mingo. I don't think Caleb Warren will be back. I think I read the end of October. So they are banged up. They're missing some guys. So they're going to need corrals, or they're going to need the quarterback to help, I guess, kind of institute the run game and, and pick up all you know the 200 yards that Corral had on Saturday night. I don't think the formula to beat LSU is going to be exactly the same, but they're going to need that element of their offense, and I'm just not sure how they're going to get it. So that's probably something to look for there, but I do think he probably plays. The last thing I want to hit to before we get to Brody Miller's interview is something that Weldon hit on on Sunday a little bit, and we talked about it some. The idea that Ed Orgeron is going to coach out the rest of this year is fascinating to me because – I think Weldon put it, they're either going to be the worst team in the country or the most dangerous team in the country. And I don't really know which one it's going to be. I, I tend to lean toward the worst part because this is such a unique situation and then there's not a lot of precedent. When you have a guy that's announced that he's not going to return next year to whatever program it is, 90% of the time it's either a guy's retiring or he'd been at the school quite a while and was just very well liked and beloved. And it's just kind of riding off into the sunset. Like, you know, Bill Snyder, I don't remember if they did that for him or if they announced his final season, but if he had been announced whenever it was that he retired, that in the, if it happened in the middle of the season, like they're going to play hard for him, the whole win one for the Gipper thing, but the entire, like the, all the reporting surrounding this Ed Orgeron thing is that the coach, the coaches and players can't stand working and playing for him anymore. He had a fractured locker room. He had outbursts on his assistants. Like I, that's the part I don't understand. They're letting this guy coach the coach the rest of the way. And I think there's reasons for that. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit with Brody's interview. Uh, there's a path to settle this thing between Ed Orgeron amicably, Ed Orgeron and LSU amicably before that's not really an option. And I'm guessing that LSU allowing him to coach out the rest of the season probably stems from one. They don't really have an interim they trust, even though I'm not really sure if that matters. What does it matter if you lose out because your interim's incompetent? I would think they wouldn't want another Ed Orgeron 2016 situation where, uh, you know, some guy comes in and goes six and one and people are claiming for clamoring for him to get the job. I would think that would be, that would make them more inclined to put someone not qualified to be the interim head coach that he's just not an option to be in the head coaching mix. But anyway, I think it also stemmed from the other aspect of it. I think it stemmed from the fact that Ed Orgeron probably wanted to coach out the rest of the year. And that was along with the $17.9 million buyout that he's getting his full allotment of a buyout. That was probably the second part of the peace offering of, Hey, let's not turn this ugly. We don't need Ed running his mouth and burning the place down on the way out, because that's really what happened here. Uh, this could have gotten ugly. This both sides could have, gotten into the whole mudslinging litigation, a little bit of what you're seeing with Jeremy Pruitt and Tennessee. I don't know if you guys saw that headline yesterday where Pruitt's lawyer pretty much just kind of put Tennessee on the clock and was like, hey, we're about to raise hell. And for the lack of a better phrase, blow this shit up if you guys don't you know, cooperate and give uh, Pruitt his money. I think there's a little bit of that with LSU and Ed Orgeron, and there's far more skeletons in the closet on both sides. So I don't think LSU 
once Ed burning the place down and opening that can of worms on the way out to use whatever cliche and analogy you want. And honestly, I don't think Ed wants everything that could become public to come become public out about him. I think he's already pretty upset at, you know, guys like Brody's story and uh, Ross Dellinger wrote one too. Uh, I, I was surprised at the amount that came out immediately after the fact about his, you know, the women aspect of it and the outbursts. I think he probably saw that and thought, Hmm, like I, I don't need more of this coming out. And I know this agreement was in place before those stories dropped. I think it started the week of the week after the Kentucky game leading up to Florida. But point being, I think Ed has some skeletons in the closet. He doesn't want aired either. And I don't think he wants to completely sever ties with a place that he does hold near and dear. And he did take his home state's football program to the pinnacle of the sport. So I think this is the most amicable resolution uh, for everyone involved. And I think it happened. The reason it happened now is because they were going down a road where that might not have been possible. But with that being said, I find it fascinating because I don't know if they're going to play hard for Edward John. I tend to think no between all the injuries and everything else. Uh, here's a, here's a take for you. I, you know, they do beat Florida last week weekend in probably one of the more shocking sec results this year, they run for 321 yards, which that says a lot more about Dan Mullen and what he should probably have to answer to than anything. LSU couldn't run the ball this year. Um, they ran for 78 yards on central Michigan. The 321 yards is more yards than they had in four of their other six games combined. And they ran all over Florida all day en route to a win. I think that was a bit more of a fluke, but here's a take for you. Maybe they were so fired up that they kind of got the thread, the tea leaves that Ed's not coming back. And we're so pumped that, you know, the asshole they're playing for is not going to be around any longer that they went out and beat a ranked team at home. I somewhat kidding in that assessment, but I do just find it all seriousness. I do find it fascinating that he's allowed to coach out the rest out of the year and how that's going to look and who is it, whether or not they're going to show up because there were times that, Kentucky where it looked like LSU quit on the field. And I tend to think you're going to get more of that because you've seen more of that, the softness, the lack of effort at times, particularly on the defensive side of the ball from LSU this year, then you have pretty much just the one game against Florida. You have four quarters to the contrary and what they've played five other games. So 20 quarters ish. I mean, they played hard against UCLA, so that's not totally fair, but four, 14 to 16 quarters of them not always playing with the greatest intensity and effort on the defensive side of the ball. So I do think you're going to get more of that. I don't know what that means for Ole Miss um, and how this game's going to play out. I think, you know, obviously if they kind of – Ole Miss jumps out on them early, I do think oh, there's a decent chance that LSU rolls over, which with as banged up as Ole Miss is, if they could jump out to a 14 nothing, 17 nothing, something like that lead, LSU kind of rolls over, it would be immensely helpful for Ole Miss to be able to kind of get some guys out of there rest a couple guys, hell, maybe even rest Corral if you can get it up that much. I don't necessarily see the game going that way, but if Ole Miss can step on LSU's neck early, and I know this is pretty basic talk radio type breakdown of games, but I really do think it's important in this game to where if Ole Miss gets up early, LSU's like, cut to hell with this. I've got this guy yelling at me on the sideline with no subtitles. I don't know what he's saying. We don't want to play for him anymore. Uh, why am I here type of thing? If you have any sort of professional future, I really don't know why you're still playing for LSU at this juncture. And I'm not huge into the whole opting out midseason thing that we saw last year where I get that kids not wanting to play beginning of the year, things like that. Corona, there's so much going on last year. I never was against kids opting out or even the Yaboa, uh, Elijah Moore thing where, you know, we've done our job to preserve our pro future, but dudes 
opting out two games in because either they're not playing enough or the team, like it wasn't going well, that didn't always sit as well with me. But I honestly could see like if there's ever an example where I would understand it. It's this. What in the world are these kids playing for? They're playing for a staff that's not going to be focused. They're going to be worried about their next job. They're playing for a lame duck head coach, not really a lame duck head coach, a fired head coach who really has no motivation uh, in his own right, other than, I guess, just kind of the pride. Maybe he's trying to coach his way into some other job. I Hell, I don't know. I don't necessarily see Edwards running college football next year, but I just don't see how they have a lot to play for. And if they look up and they're down 14 to nothing on the scoreboard with three minutes to go in the first quarter, are they really going to try to dig deep, deep and climb into that game? And as Ole Miss tries to survive this month of October, I think a fast start against LSU could provide some much-needed I don't know if rest is the right word because you're not going to rest starters up 14, nothing, but a little bit of wiggle room to kind of preserve some guys. Maybe that's the best way to put it. So anyway, there's a couple of thoughts in this game. Let's get to Brody Miller uh, before we end up ranting too long. All right, here is Brody Miller. I thought this was a great interview. Enjoy. All right, we now welcome on the busiest man in America, which might include the president of the United States over the last week or so probably beyond that he is Brody Miller he covers LSU and college football for the athletic um you know th- when I come on most of the time when I do these like opponent previews like the week of I kind of try to spend an hour hour and a half watching film is the dumb way to put it just games like try to yeah. get as much as I can of another team's offense defense I did none of that and honest to god my notepad's blank because I couldn't like copy and paste what you wrote on Sunday onto the notepad so this has been a little bit of different prep. We'll talk some Ole Miss LSU, I guess, game-wise, but uh, a wild, wild week in Baton Rouge. How are you doing? You you look great. You look like you slept some. It, it's, it's honestly great to see you, that you're in decent shape uh, via Zoom. How are you? Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. I can't complain. Uh, it's been a wild, wild few weeks and even wilder 72 hours, but – Hey, man, this is uh, – you've been through it. Coaching changes. This is what you uh, – I don't know if I'd say this is what you get into business for, but this is the the peak of being a, a beat reporter is the days of a coaching change. So, yeah, I, I've always knew one was going to come eventually, and it's here, and it is, uh, it is as advertised. It is chaos. From a covering it perspective, I mean, you're right. That is part of the industry. That's part of covering a team, part of covering a beat. But, you know, you could make the argument here that this is one of the stranger ones – that in recent memory, just because of the anticipation, but also the twists and turns and everything in the middle, like it's not your typical, oh, okay, you know, there's usually a linchpin moment when they lose a game and it's like, yeah. all right, they're probably getting fired. Let's start asking questions. Whereas this has been brewing for seven to eight months out. There's a million places we could start with this. But honestly, <laughs> there's no better place to start than the story you wrote Sunday. The headline that I have up, just make sure I have it right, is, Quote, he lost track of who he was inside Orgeron's fall from celebrated son of Louisiana to coaching pariah. I, I could not think of a better headline. Um, if you didn't write it, please take credit for writing it. It, it could not more no, happen. No, not me. No. Happen. But, man, what an incredible – so it's on theathletic.com. Uh, I would encourage you to go read it. If you don't have an account, my login is bsrippy at gmail.com. No, I'm just kidding. Please Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> please, please seriously go read this. It is an incredible – Honestly, like I knew when I opened it, I had I knew it was going to be good, but I got about nine paragraphs in and I was like, holy shit, like this, you brought the heat with this one. It's truly terrific work from both the storytelling and a reporting standpoint. I, I could not recommend it enough. 
I sent it to my girlfriend who doesn't know anything about sports, but her dad's an OSU guy. And she was like, what happened with that Orgeron? I was like, don't even really have, like, couldn't start. Here's the link. Um, and she understood it. So uh, I hope you're patting yourself <laughs> on the back a little bit because it's a terrific story, but it's, it's, it's unbelievable how quickly this fall from grace has happened. And I guess we'll just kind of start with an open-ended question. We've kind of seen this coming for a while, but when, in your opinion, did it get real? That's a great question. Yeah. And I'll almost take it back before, before then where it's something that has been, like you said, slowly happening in some capacity, pretty much from the months after the national championship, even before they started losing in 2020, not that there was literal pressure on him yet, but it's just been slowly building there where, yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to it. There's the off the field problems. And then weeks before the season, you have just a mishandled protest that just kind of lost the locker room. And again, like he wasn't on the hot seat from that, but it was just kind of a thing of like, oh man, he might be kind of losing this. Because the way I think you and I put it many times is he had all the capital in the world, like as much capital as a coach could ever really have, considering his relevance in the state and his beloved nature and his personality. Like after that national title, he had every bit of capital you think a coach would ever have. And by then it was already like, oh, he's going to mess. He's messing that capital up already. And then, yeah, then you go five and five. But even then you could explain away a lot of that. You know, there's so much that you really can't explain away if you want to, where you could be like, oh, wow, they lost 20 starters. You're replacing your whole staff. And it happens in a pandemic. Like no defending champ ever has had to deal with that. But I think things really started to look tougher for him. And again, when we should say they have a really talented team this year, like the expectation was if you get those hires right, that team should win 10 games or nine games was like a disappointment to some extent. That was the expectation. And then you have, behind the scenes, and this wasn't public, of course, but you started having his off-the-field antics kind of not, like, make him be fired, but, hey, you're losing that benefit, the doubt you had, you know? And it was like – so I think, you know, in the spring when some of the stuff I reported about, you know, the board finding out about him hitting on a high-ranking person's wife and just stuff like that and these in, – in this town, I can promise you, just every story started just circling and everyone had heard every rumor. A lot of them aren't true. A lot of them are – and it just became this messiness that kept compiling. So by this spring, when a lot of us were kind of writing, Ed needs to win this year, when we got some pushback, like people being like, what are you talking about? Why is there pressure on this guy? I just want a title. 2020 was weird. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but it's not. It's behind the scenes. Like there's frustration. So he needs to prove he's going to still win here. And that's why when the UCLA game happened, it was pretty clear he there was still a good chance he could turn it around but right after UCLA and the sissy blue shirt comment stuff and all that it was like oh this might be the beginning of the end right here because you had the messiness behind the scenes also we haven't even mentioned you have the title nine investigation going on behind it and, and again he hasn't directly been I mean he's been mentioned in a lot of it but there's not much like confirmable I guess would be the best way to put it confirmable damning things on him at that yet i mean there might be there absolutely might be most of it has been kind of denied or, or gone away but you have that you have the off the field stuff and then you it looks like all of a sudden after the ucla game it's like oh the same problems that were there in 2020 aren't gone we thought that the coordinators would fix that we thought that this experienced roster would fix that and it's like oh they're not so right then it became clear this is possibly happening and then you give away the auburn and then you just get destroyed against Kentucky. And then to get this is my long winded way of getting to your question. 
this was happening after UCLA, but after Kentucky, it was, oh, you can't even wait anymore. This, this is happening. Done. This is happening. Yeah, exactly. You saw a team look like it's starting to quit. Then you saw three players go out with surgeries in the in that week. They're best players, man. And it's like, okay. And that's when the negotiations started with Scott Woodward and, and Ed Ogeron to agree on a, a separation agreement. And that is now where we are now, where the Florida result, you know, shocking Florida in pretty impressive fashion, man. That didn't change anything. That was that was an impressive game, but it's going to change how they feel about it. So it's all the terrific reporting that's been done on this and whether it's honestly, I mean, whether everyone that's plugged in down there, you Ross, whomever has had this as a starting point, the botched social justice protests, really kind of the entire summer of 2020 and the way he handled that. And I went back and listened to the podcast we did in the summer where it was a, uh, I would say a lot more laid back uh, conversation about Ed's job and all of that. And it was interesting because at that time, it seemed like, yeah, that was a problem. And he kind of lost the locker room. And there was, it wasn't like certain yet that I guess, quote unquote, he'd gotten it back. It was maybe the hope that winning would maybe erase all of that. And it would kind of come together yeah. via success type of thing. But now that this is over, that's the starting point, really, no matter what story you read about this, anyone that's plugged in that is kind of has a beat on this situation, that seems to be the starting point. And, you know, we don't need to rehash everything that happened with it, right? He goes on Fox News, the whoever the host was, kind of try to basically goad him into saying something positive about the current president. And, I mean, given that moment in time, no matter how you feel politically, like that just wasn't really going to fly well with everything that was going on around the country. And then not really being overly eager to show up to the social justice protest that LSU and other like programs all across the country were having yeah. was just kind of seeming to com compile or yeah, kind of snowball the situation basically. And then there's the meeting and all of that. I guess the best way to ask this is had that not happened and had he just kept his mouth shut is not totally fair, but he doesn't do the Fox thing. And then he kind of puts on, even if he doesn't agree, disagree, whatever the case may be, he goes out there with the players. And when they kind of ask him to come do the March and all of that, if he handles that better and the Fox news thing doesn't happen and he's not vocal at all, do you think we're in this situation right now? Because I know there's a lot of other factors with it, but it feels like that's a large chunk of the off the field stuff. And you mentioned being able to explain away the five and five. So do you think he's in this situation right now? If that doesn't happen, even though five and five and hell, I don't even know their record right now happens. Four and three. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, really, really good question. I don't know the answer because I think they're still getting to this point. Eventually I do, you know, because even if the locker room was maybe better in 2020, you still have a disastrous defense under Bo Pliny. And you know, as, as Ross Dellinger put in his article, and I heard over time too, like he and Pelini barely spoke. Like, and Pelini like didn't show up. He'd be golfing and stuff like that. Like, there was just a that hire was always going to be trouble. And there were always going to be issues with that team replacing so many players. And, and then you had the issue with the opt outs right before the season. And this isn't why they're losing, but it's like, okay, you're losing your best players. But people, the part people also miss in that is that it also meant that like Jamar Chase or Tyler Shelvin were taking all those ones reps all month and then all in all off season. And then all of a sudden they're gone. And now you have a bunch of guys who didn't even get those reps that are young and not ready. And I, I, I think LSU was always going to have problems in hindsight. I think that 2020, but what that did, I think was 
yeah, maybe a seven and a six and four season becomes five and five. Absolutely. But I think what it did is just create this thing where he's just messing stuff up, you know, and, and I don't, that sounds so overly simplistic, but because at the end of the day, as much as I talk all this stuff about the off field issues, he's getting fired because he didn't win enough. Like that's just true. The other stuff is why he didn't get the benefit down. You know what I mean? That's why the leash is even shorter. Absolutely. But he, he lost, he's losing the job because he is now, nine and eight in this stretch and it's been kind of in an ugly fashion so i'm kind of losing my train of thought here but what i'm trying to say i guess is it was happening eventually it just expedited this would happen yeah i think that's a good way to put it and it was just a representation of ed the things i think what it really represents is the things that ed was doing so well he suddenly wasn't because i'm a believer there's a lot of people who have for the past few months been like see this all proves 2019 was a fluke it's all burrow and brady and all that stuff and like i get it but I'm a believer. Ed Ogeron actually is someone who was there all the time. Like he earned 2019. He made all those great hires. He fixed a ton of cultural program issues from the Les Miles there, fixed how they practiced, fixed how they recruited, all this stuff. And he built the team that won them a national title. He got Burrow. He got Brady. He found Brady out of nowhere. He landed a bunch of key recruits. Like I give Ogeron credit. And that's why I think this story is so fascinating to me, is because it's not like Ed just like it's, it's not even like Ed went back to Ole Miss. Ed. It's really like Ed just it was a slow whittling away of the exact things he did well. He was a player's coach and suddenly the players can stand him. You know, he was a really good delegator who the entire selling point of hiring him was you're going to have the best coordinators, right? You're going to have Lane Kiffin and Dave Aranda be your coordinators. That was the whole thing. And three years later, he struck out on four consecutive coordinator hires in two years. You know, it's like, wait, all of the things that were your selling points are just kind of gone and you're messing stuff up off the field. It's That's, I think, what really happened. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I'm glad you went to the whole, oh, see, 2019 was a fluke thing. And that's just what we kind of do, whether it's outside <laughs> media or fans alike. We love to play the results. So when something happens at one point and then after the fact, when it's easier to kind of see how it happened, it's like, oh, who could it? Like everyone saw this coming. It's like, no. Because honestly, and that was probably a question I was going to ask you later down the road, but the hell we can get to it now. When you're sitting in the press box on to championship night 2019, there's no way you, like, I'm answering this for you, but did you think that this was going to happen the way it did this quickly? Because to your point, he deserves credit for building LSU into that national title team. And he kind of ditched a lot of his old, ha- his old habits. I know he had the Matt Canada situation where, you know, the whole this is not my offense thing. But at least 2019 and parts of 2018, he didn't yeah. meddle with it. He stayed out of it. That was his whole provincial. He stayed out of it. So he did. And change. I don't think he meddled in 20 either is the crazy thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so he stayed out of it. Right. So yeah. I, I, everyone loves to play the results aspect of it. But, like, there's no way anyone could have actually seen this coming because I remember after they beat Clemson in 2019, I was like, damn, he actually kind of has figured this thing out. Like, because he talked yeah. different. He behaved differently. Like, and he eventually reverted back some of the old things that kind of led to his downfall. But like you said, I don't think it's fair to call it a fluke because he definitely did change. And so I guess I guess the simplistic way to ask this, did you think <laughs> this was going to happen so soon? Because if you're being honest with yourself or my, talking to myself here, I didn't. I thought he had built a program that could kind of run itself. No, I think you're right. I, I think you nailed it where it's like you look back and the recruiting was there. So, the, I mean, yeah, you assume there'd be like a dip in 2020. Sure. But it was to me. And by the way, same for 2021. It was clear like they have the talent where actually I was even talking with T-Bob all the time about how 
like the 2020 team just from like a literal like top to bottom infrastructure like recruiting rankings thing I'm like they're technically more talented than 2019 just technically if you like view it like right. recruiting rankings and all that stuff I'm like there's no reason they shouldn't keep this rolling if you can kind of keep what you were doing and, and by the way it's even more so in 2021 their junior class right now is number five class in the country the sophomore class right now is number four class in the country and the, the freshman class right now is the number three class in the country like they were constantly getting talent and better and that's the I think deep down that's kind of like why you lose the job at this point because the talent is absolutely there and one kind of wasn't getting developed correctly a lot of people in the program would tell you like they started changing how they practiced again which is again the thing he got credit for now all of a sudden he's changing that and they were making terrible coordinator hires it was just all this stuff or something and then of course the players are frustrated with him and it was just kind of like there's no real excuse for this. Like this team right now is not anymore because the injuries, but it's still kind of super, super talented. And I think it's just kind of, yeah, there's no way I could have expected this. I, I, I think I didn't think yet they were in the Clemson Bama zone by any means. I think they, I still was like, you got to show me that for a few years, but they were whatever the closest you can be to that without being, it was just in terms of, Hey, here's a program that's won three titles with three coaches. Your recruiting is off the charts. Your culture seems great. Your coach seems on top of the world. You just won a title. Like this should keep rolling. And it just, a lot of mistakes were made. You mentioned the culture aspect of it. And honestly, like the, you know, if, if there's anything that could have eroded that culture faster, it seems like some of that stuff that we covered earlier in the summer of 2020 really, really eroded that pretty quickly. And so the Sunday show I do is with a former old Miss recruiting staffer who's from Baton Rouge and kind of grew up an LSU guy, if you'll call it. And he even kind of mentioned that aspect of he's like, yeah, they're recruiting great, like on paper. But as you mentioned, they weren't developed correctly. There are some misses in there. And whether that's development yeah. or they just missed on a few guys and it didn't really work out, that also is kind of what, you know, can have you shown the door pretty quickly either. Like he, not only do you have to land good classes, you got to hit on these kids as well. And so that no, that's a really good point, actually. Cause I want to say like, yeah, you look at, you look at the 2019 class, those juniors. Okay. Number five class. Right. And Stingley is one of the best players in the country, but look at that class right now. Six, they had 10 guys ranked like 159 or better. Like those top 10 players, really great class. Six of them just aren't on the team anymore. Like whether it be like arrests or academic issues or just like, transfers or like or you know or how to put this character issues you know like a lot of them are just gone uh the five-star guard cardell thomas and a few others are just busts and john emory's gone and you know it's like ty davis price is okay you know like it's duds 2019 class as talented as it seemed is kind of a bad class like when you look at like what's going to be there next year the seniors like jay ward's a good player cordell flott's a good player ty davis price is solid that's it like that's it so I think you're, it's a huge point or even 2020 class, Eric Gilbert, like that's one of the biggest recruiting who's in LSU history, quite frankly, because even the higher rated guys were always Louisiana. Kids. Like that was an all timer. He's gone, obviously. And he has a ton of issues and I'm not calling, I'm not going to call him like a character miss, but you know, some weird stuff there. So it's like, it, it was, and then they took a lot of like top 150 linemen that finally seemed like they're going to be big hits because their offensive line's been a disaster but they weren't good players. Like they were guys, other bigger programs weren't taking, you know, they weren't going for them. That's true with a few other defensive players too. So I think there was just a little bit of, like I wrote that huge story on how the 2017 class was an all timer. Cause it was like, even the two stars were the best character guys who became Clyde Edwards, Alaire and Justin Jefferson. Well, the last few classes have kind of been the opposite, or at least the 2018 and 19 classes where it was like the highest rated guys were guys who shouldn't be taking. And I think that's, 
a bit roster management is a very big part of this. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want, yeah, you brought no, up a great I, point. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a great point. It is really the antithesis of the kind of the founding classes that built that 2019. I think that's a great point. Let's get to the, se- the separation agreement itself. Uh, we were actually recording our Sunday show and like Weldon like kind of was like, hey, can we pause it for a second? I just want to watch this. I was like, <laughs> by all means, I'm down to watch this. So, like, pause it for a second. We watched the press conference. It was bizarre in some ways, but then in some ways it kind of added some color in as much as a public-facing press conference can to make it make a little more sense. You hit on a little bit of this in your story. Based on your understanding of it, and you know, feel free to divulge as much as you can and as much as you're able. They kept referencing the Kentucky game, and this was before I had read – I'd read your story at this point. I'd read a little bit of Ross's, and I hadn't read the full scope of everything that was going on. I know there was more stuff that came out after – they kept referencing the Kentucky game without like anyone asking about the Kentucky game. So it came, became very clear that this was in the works after that loss. Is that the way you understand it? Or do you think there were any sort of conversations about this sort of plan agreement, quote unquote, prior to Kentucky at all? Yeah, I would say it was headed that way regardless. It okay. was going that way. But the Kentucky game was the this can't be salvaged anymore. That was the Ed's not even going to fight this moment. You know what I mean? Like, and that's why I was like, you did. I'm glad you brought it up. It was so interesting how Ed would go out of his way a few times to be like, yeah, after Kentucky, I do, you know, it's probably time, you know, like I think there was, that was the moment where, oh, it almost looks like, and I hate using terms like this because they're dramatic. I don't think they literally were doing this, but it looked like the defense quit, you know, and the offense just looked like it couldn't figure anything out. And it was just like, oh, this is you should not be losing like this to Kentucky, and I think that's a slightly fault flawed thinking. Kentucky's just really good, but still, the point stands. Like that was really the, it's not going to be salvaged anymore moment. This is the Ed's not going to fight anymore moment, and I think that's when the discussion started. Like, would this have happened by the bye week anyway? Yeah, but that was, hey, it's over, you know. Yeah, no, and, and we're we're plugging the entire Brody Miller archives here, but your story from that night, the damn the night the damn broke Fred Ozeron, I think you encapsulated it very well in the sense that it's not that that was a shock; it was the confirmation of what most people thought was going to happen or feared. I know it was only a three and a half point line, but you know if there's a telltale sign that you've lost it, it's that no matter how talented Kentucky is, they go and kick your ass and kind of push you around the field. And, you know, I don't really like using the word quit and all that, but, man, it didn't look like they were engaged, if you want to use a softer (laughs) term, to put it mildly. And I think you encapsulated that well, particularly at the top of that story. So it seemed over then, getting to the agreement itself, there's some interesting stuff in there. And I'll just leave it open-ended at first and add one nugget that surprised me. But once you kind of heard it, saw it, reported it. Was there anything specifically about the agreement that surprised you? A very minor nugget to me was the fact that he has to make one appearance a year for the next four years uh, at LSU's request. I'm guessing that's national title stuff, but was there anything about this agreement from coaching out the rest of the year to getting his full allotment of money? Was there anything that shocked you about the agreement itself? Can I be really honest with you? I think you've looked at that more than I have. Actually. Okay, fair enough. I think I was in – no, no, no. I love the question. I just think I was in so, like, that story mode and, like, no, I know what you mean. mode that I'm like, I, I saw the money details and I didn't look through it as much. That Now I need to go look through it more. I know that there's a thing in there about not being an SEC head coach again, which, again, like, that seems kind of silly uh, to have it. Seems that. moot for, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah no, I knew there's – but no, wait, so what else did you notice? I'm intrigued now. 
No, so the, I can't take credit for that. Someone tweeted that out, like a screenshot of it, because I didn't dig through it myself. Someone tweeted a screenshot of it and it was like, oh, what is this about the uh, public appearance thing? So I was like, what the hell is this? But I did wow. confirm it. I went and found it after that. I don't know what that is. I don't think it's a major That's... detail. I just found it odd. Well, I do find that there's something interesting there about how it's about like, this was amicable. And I think in an ideal world, they'd love that to be like, Ed went out peacefully and now he still gets, and this was my thing the whole time. Like I wondered if Ed plays this smart, he, and, and maybe my story makes that tougher. I don't know. But if Ed plays this smart, he should be remembered as the guy who won them 2019. He's the guy from the Bayou, the guy who is Louisiana. He should be remembered as a folk hero here for decades. Like, so I, I, I think that's cool that that's in there because like, that's how it should be. I think there were stretches of the last few weeks where you wondered like how messy is this going to be? Is he going to fight this down and things? Is this going to end poorly? So I don't mean to say it's good. It's a really sad story of a guy whose entire life was about this job and it's gone. It's really sad, but I think that's at least good that that's that they're ending like this he's getting his money that they're able to have a press conference together and shake hands you know even though it seemed awkward so i think that's kind of cool in a way not to be boring no no i think you're right and that's that's why i i, I kind of mentioned that sure. and when i asked you that question like i wasn't asking like hey did you pour through this agreement type of thing i really just I know. Yeah, I know. macro sense like were you surprised that he was allowed to coach the re- not allowed Ended up, yeah. whatever the case may be, allowed to coach the rest of the year. Did that surprise you? Did you figure they would go with an interim? Because you mentioned at the top when we were talking, they didn't have an interim. And this was something yeah. that as complete outsider, Weldon and I talked about, to where it's like they probably don't want an Orgeron situation again. Like, can you can you get some GA or the water boy, for Christ's sake, and throw a headset <laughs> on him just to make sure it doesn't happen? What do you think was the thinking behind allowing him to coach the rest of the year? Because – Weldon yeah. kind of put his recruiting brain on him. Was like, I can't believe he's going to be calling recruits. And I was like, maybe that's just kind of for show. What did you think about that aspect? No, from what I understand, he was literally recruiting yesterday. Uh, like, interesting. Going on a yeah, um, yeah. I think it, there's a lot to it. I think there's one. Yeah, I don't think they could figure out a great interim situation because, not to be like overly simplistic but like it filled out a staff that was kind of so troubled that there was no one you can turn to like right. your coordinators are both in, inexperienced guys who weren't ready to be coordinators let alone head coaches you know and, and and things like that so i think that's a part i think there's the part of like i was saying kind of covering your bases a little bit of let's not let this get messy with ogeron trying to bring lsu down and lsu trying to bring ogeron down like let's get him his money let's make sure fans aren't skipping games let's make sure like there's a stable presence and he gets to go out on peaceful terms i think that's a big part of it but yeah i was very surprised i mean shoot i don't know if my story would have been as uh uh honest as it was if i would have known when i wrote it that he'd still be on for the next six weeks but um yeah but uh, that's a different story but um yeah and i think there's i think it is surprising there's really not much precedent for this you know there have been other like Hey, the guys were tiring stuff. Exactly, really Bill Snyder esque. Yeah, there's not much precedent for this, and especially considering there, there's, and you know, there's that Pete Dimble quote about I don't want to play for him. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, I believe it might be, but it is. It's not like everyone's like, man, we are doing this for Coach O, you know. And so it's a very weird situation. But I think overall, the answer comes down to finding a way to cover your bases of not letting fan apathy take over having your fan base know you have a future, but still having a stable presence there and keeping everyone happy. That's my, my read, my speculation. That was the shocking part to me about it because you, you just nailed it there where 
you know, whether it, Bill Snyder or someone old or someone who's just time has come is beloved by the university, which not, not that Ed is not completely like completely disliked, but over a longer period of time, it's like, all right, let's go out, win one for the Gipper, all that shit. That's not really what the reporting was. I mean, you hinted at it in your reporting. It's pretty much consensus that part of the reason was is that he lost the locker room. It was a fractured locker room. The assistant coaches weren't – he didn't have great relationships with them. The volatility had crept back in. That's the weird part about kind of his ability to, uh, I guess, coach the rest of the season. That's what makes it a weird dynamic. And that kind of leads me to, I guess, my last question about the agreement aspect of it. You hit on it, and I think it's an easy answer, but I'd love to kind of get your expanded thoughts on it. This was a product of let's not go down this road that could get very ugly, a lot of mudslinging, and let's not open a can of worms that would be mutually, whatever the opposite of beneficial is, harmful to both parties. Like, I imagine that they gave him his money because they didn't want him going scorched earth and burning the place, burning the place down on the way out. And honestly, I'm, I imagine there's an aspect of Ed that – probably thought particularly after things had gone sideways at the Kentucky game, like you said, that thought, you know, this place does mean a lot to me. I took them to the pinnacle of the sport. I don't want to be the, I can't even, there's examples of this, but I can't think of it. But when there's a five-year reunion and they're being honored on the field, Ed's not there because there's some sort of litigation or some shit going on. Like, is that kind of how this played out? This was a, let's settle this amicably before there's no amicable option. I think it's a yeah. I think it's a very very large part of it, and of course it's worth mentioning even to the last question that like he did just beat Florida. You know like, that, that does true. help. Like you know like that does help the case for keeping him on, but yeah, pretty convincingly too. But yeah, I think I think your point is pretty accurate. That I think a lot of it had to do with amicability and uh, PR and uh, damage control and things like that. Because you know I mean shoot a lot of what my story got to. I mean that's what they're kind of trying to protect here with that with with these, these agreements is, Hey, we're going to pay you. Don't let this get messy. And, you know, I, I, mine got a little messy, but I don't think it's all the mess. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, I think to answer your question, that's a very large reason. And that's really what I was leading to like kind of getting towards the end of this is like you, <laughs> one of the things you outlined very well in your story was, you know, it, it is sad. Like, I'm glad you brought that up yeah. before I did, because I wrote this in like the Monday newsletter I did, where I was like, I don't really expect anyone. And I'm really speaking to an outside audience, obviously, but like, I don't really expect anyone to feel badly for Ed Ogeron, but there is a sadness element to this. Absolutely. Because he, it, it, you're right. This job kind of was his life and his, not identity, but it was very important to him. He was kind of Louisiana's favorite son. And the very things that led to his flame out at Ole Miss kind of started to creep back in. Now, he didn't go full on the, you know, mini fridges out of Red Bull. Let's throw this shit through a wall in the IPF. But some of the things that led to his flaws as a head coach started to creep back in, whether it was meddling in areas where he wasn't necessarily, uh, I guess, keen to meddle in some outbursts. I mean, even just the small signs of it, I was going to kind of add what you were saying a second ago, but you're on a roll and I just let it kept going where it was like, Look, if you need confirmation bias, it's a small thing, but yelling at the UCLA guy, sissy blue shirt, that's 2007, Ed. That's not 2019, Ed, right? Like, So you're seeing symptoms of it, and it crept back in. This always gets messy, and I don't want to get you in trouble here, but you did outline this well in your story. You know, the divorce happens after the national championships, like five, six weeks. That's a very bizarre time to get divorced. And from you can read into it however you want, but that didn't necessarily seem to be – 
Ed kind of becoming a superstar versus more of a more private issue just between two people. And there's a million reasons divorces happen. I'm not married. Uh, You're not married that I know of. Um, Not to turn this into a Colin Cowherd thing, but it seems like when that major life event happened with Ed, it changed a lot of things for him. And they kind of the women aspect of this, just best that you were able to encapsulate it. How much did that play a factor in this? You had the note about, you know, women coming to the facility and their kids participating in drills. How much? I did not report that. I did not report oh, that. Oh, sorry. That, I see. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sorry. That, that was, was a TV point. reporter. Yeah. I don't know if that's accurate. Okay. That's sorry. That's. <laughs> No, you're fine. No, you're fine. I'm glad you stopped me. I apologize. But the women aspect of it, and, you know, you had the gas station nugget, kind of the six, one, yes. half dozen, the other, same type of thing about where, like, women and other things became a priority. You know, you see this a lot with people in general. It's not even just famous people. I mean, extreme examples, Tiger Woods, where his father dies and he just loses his way. When something happens in your personal life, you can just lose your way. How much of a factor, this is a bad way to ask it, do you think that was – in his unraveling because that to me is the sad aspect of it exactly and i'm really glad you framed it that way because i actually like i'll be honest i think my regret of how like the story has been perceived since and this is you know between me you and your listeners but is that it kind of became like more about like a salacious like ed you know being like out of control thing and i the only reason i really had that section in there is because i think it tells the story of the decline not because i think it's about you know, I think it's actually a really sad arc of, yeah, it's what happens when a guy who's already, you know, a volatile human being just, you know, I think some of his greatest strengths are that volatility. And some now, his life was one aspect of stability and what could have been volatile. Yeah. He was volatile in other like, areas. He, that seemed to be a stable, stabilizing thing for him. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, yeah, exactly. But I think it's what happens when a guy who is already pretty volatile reaches the absolute height of his life and career and profession right as a pandemic hits and he gets divorced publicly and you all of a sudden are like on your own going through one of the toughest things you go through in your life if you ever get divorced from what i understand really tough you're going through that while you are the most popular man in the state and you have to like do all these things and quite frankly yeah ed has kept a pretty private life for a while and kept things pretty tame and i think you know, I think he's got other demons historically. And that was kind of his outlet. You know, I think that's the best way to put it. You know, everyone has outlets and his was that, you know, and, and I don't think he didn't. And I, again, I make clear that I don't think he did anything morally wrong. He wasn't no, not in the bad. It was just kind of a lost his way a little bit. And that's why I think it's so sad. It's not like he's getting, you know, I, it's not like I was trying to write Ed, you know, was doing like this with girls and shame on him. It was, it's kind of sad. It's like, this guy was at the top. And all of a sudden, you know, he's vulnerable and he's making some choices that are just kind of little by little whittling away the things he does well because his focus is kind of all over the place. And then he's creating messes for, you know, for himself with some of his actions off the field. And and all of a sudden, while that's happening, I think his decision making was getting worse with hires and decisions with the team and stuff like that. And I think that's how you get there. It is a really sad story because I don't think it's like Ed. I don't think it's Ed went back to Ole Miss Ed. I really don't. I don't think he's been meddling or anything like that if anything he wasn't meddling enough in you know I, I don't think it's that i think it's just like he just slowly kind of was lose just stopped focusing on the things that made him so good and i think that's just really sad you know that a guy who had reached the pinnacle proven everybody wrong now everybody believes those things about him tenfold that's a sad story sure you see it anywhere in life i mean it's human nature right like we all have 
it's not even a vice because that would suggest it was something morally wrong or like salacious. Like you said, it's just, he was trying to cope with a major event that had happened in his life. And it's not a bad thing, but to your point, it kind of distracted from football being his life and some of the things he really had to focus on to make him great. That seemed to become a little bit of a distraction. And so that's probably a decent enough place to, to kind of wrap up the end part of it is like, how do you think he's remembered in 10 years here? I know yeah. some of that's probably remains to be seen. No, that's how a really good out, question. But how do you think, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a perfect question. Uh, I Yeah, and like you said, so much will determine how what he ends up doing in the next year, two years from now, does a coach again, all that. But I think Ed will be remembered, I think, as the folk hero. You know, I think. Uh, that's my – in five years' time. Yeah, maybe not in six months. But I think as time goes on, he will be remembered as this kind of cool, flawed human who is Louisiana through and through both good and good and bad and took them to the promised land, led them to their best season in school history. And like, I don't know. I think it will be looked back that way, especially if the next hire works out, then it's really going to be looked at that way. They're like, Hey, this was the guy who got us there. We love him, but he just wasn't able to do it long term. I think that's how he goes down. I'm trying to, I'm almost stalling because I'm trying to think of a great sports comp like that. Cause there are examples of guys like that. Um, like, I don't think Gene Chizik's necessarily that. I think if anything, his is negative. Like, who's an example of somebody who kind of was like a one, not one, I'm not calling it a one hit wonder, but it was like that one hit guy, but it's just beloved. Johnny Manziel is probably still pretty beloved in uh, college days. Yeah. It's not a perfect. What about player? like Trent Dilfer Ravens? I'm I like not that. saying, not even saying like the scale's the same. Didn't but he like not get re signed after they did won? not get re signed. Okay. Yeah. No, that, there we go. We found But him. he will probably always be a Ravens legend. You he know? will buy like, a beer in Baltimore. Not the same thing. Like Ed to LSU is better than Dofer to Ravens. Sure. But still, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think that's might be the best one where he's probably still revered. Yeah. Or and Flacco, it, hell. <laughs> it, yeah. It's, and it's, it's honestly kind of, I mean, even from a football sense, the stability that kind of kept him in line eroded around him. Like Joe Brady leaves, Dave Aranda leaves, Joe Burrow leaves, like some yeah. of that insular part of it left as well. Kind of the last thing I want to get before I let you get out of here is one of the things that stuck out to me in that press conference was, and look, the name of the game, you know how this works. The name of the game in this is trying to read in between the lines, particularly when you're watching on TV and you're not there without actually reading too much in between the lines where it doesn't make any sense. To me, it seems like Scott Woodward says this situation by the balls for the lack of a better phrase. He seems like he is very much in control and has a kind of a very firm handle on how, how shit's going to be run for the lack of a better phrase. And so as they move into this coaching search and seeing how he kind of handled this situation and the, um, the actual end of it, I, give me your best description of how he, what he is as a figure in terms of a power standpoint, because I know they have a new chancellor who kind of seems to be somewhat known for being involved in sporting yeah. decisions. But Scott Woodward seems like he kind of runs a pretty tight ship and he has a lot of power there. Would you agree with that assessment? Just kind of give me your Scott Woodward character yeah. assessment. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, Scott Woodward is like a literal favorite son of Louisiana, who is a guy whose entire claim rise to power really throughout college sports was by being a really good political operator who could maneuver academics with politics in Louisiana, which is everything in Louisiana is combining those two things is, you know, the university and, you know, football and politics. And he's a master at that. And he gets this job, you know, he was already had become the top of many other schools and he comes back. And I think that guy probably has as much power as any athletic director. It's 
in his university as I can really recall, just because it's like, this guy was already the best somewhere else or the best at hiring or whatever. Andy's ours. Andy's so connected to this state. Everyone, like, I think, I think he, to some extent, you would assume it would be, hey, he can do whatever he wants. And there is a little trickiness right now where President William Tate, you know, I think has, you know, things he wants from that hire and, and whatnot. But at the same time, I think Scott Woodward's going to win a lot of those things because Scott Woodward has so much power here. He and and as I think you're alluding to, like he has a history of getting huge name hires, and he has a history of getting kind of who he wants. He doesn't really miss, you know. I mean, obviously, you can run through it. Chris Peterson to Washington when no one thought he was ever leaving Boise State. Jimbo leaving a national title, you know program whether he had won with at florida state to a&m even buzz williams to a&m and i think honestly in terms of scale the biggest hire he's ever made really is getting kim mulkey to leave baylor for lsu <laughs> like just in terms of like scale to the sport. that's a that's great insane. point a great example it's a, it's insane so yeah he he's really good at that i don't know what he's gonna be able to get you know like my colleague bruce feldman reported that you know uh that he, he's even gonna make Dabo say no and again i don't think Dabo's gonna be lsu's head coach or i don't think I think there's interest in Jimbo, but I don't think Jimbo's going to be LSU's next head coach. But I think there's a lot of really big names on there that he can get. LSU is one of the five best jobs in the country, I think, by most coaches. Outlook. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what he wants, what he can do, and what happens. Last thing I skipped before I had one more question about the search, then we'll get out of here. But like, do you, you think fraud. Ed's... Yeah, you think Ed seems at peace? <laughs> you think Ed seems at peace with this? I was trying to figure out his mannerisms as best you could in a public facing press conference. But where do you think his headspace is now? He seemed very like to me, the, one of the reasons I thought he maybe seemed at peace with this, he knew it was coming. Someone asked him if he was going to coach next year. And literally before they got the words out of their mouth, he was like, Nope, like yeah. I'm going to take some out. And that may change. That doesn't mean he's not going to, but that, like that sort of clarity and definitiveness and answering that made me think that he's a little bit at peace with this. How do you think his headspace is going into the last six weeks of this season? Yeah, I think he's sad, but not angry. You know, I think he's sad about what happened. I think it really bums him out. This was his life goal. But I think he's come to, he's had, you know, four or five weeks to come to terms with this, quite frankly. Like it's been heading here. And I think he's just kind of, by the time Kentucky happened, he was just kind of ready. So I think he is kind of like in a weird weight lifted mode. I think he even used those words at his press conference yesterday. I think there's a little bit of that. You're true to it. Uh, you know, I think he's, there's, Nothing to lose here. He's got 17, well, more than $17 million in the bank and a national title. And he's going out on good terms and all that. You know, I think I think he's kind of been, hey, what do I got to lose? This is, you know, I'm going to enjoy this. I think that's where he's at. But is there a sadness? Of course. But I don't think there's real anger right now. Maybe toward me, but that's it. Well, Wade, do they suck or do they play hard for him the rest of the way? <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I don't think they suck because even like the guys filling in for a bootay, right. Or number 50 overall recruits in the country, or like the guys filling in for, I don't know, Derek Stingley are still really good football players. So I don't think they suck. I think they, I kind of think they covered the 10, honestly, but I don't think they win many games the rest of the year. You know, it's somewhere in between. Is that fair? No, a really hard schedule. Like they might win one of those next four SEC games. Yeah, I thought about wasting ten minutes asking you about their newfound running success and how Dan Mullen should have to answer for allowing two hundred or three hundred twenty on yards for yeah. two hundred seventy-eight on Central Michigan. But uh, this was tough look. Yeah, this story is just too 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 wild. Last thing I have for you, I know there's plenty of time. Liar! <laughs> I always lie, dude. You know this. I you know that you what you were getting into the the way this job's viewed, as you mentioned, top five job for everyone. And I don't like. It's so dumb in October to be like, hey, who are they hiring? 
But in your general sense, just how do you kind of get a scope of how this search is going to go? You mentioned, you know, the Fisher aspect of it. I honestly kind of tend to think he means what he says about not leaving a And I think part of that's the LSU side of maybe some people in charge feeling like they maybe got burned in 15. Is there a certain trait or quality or is there anything you're looking for or two things you're looking for in this search over the next couple of weeks? Because there is a unique situation in the sense that they have some time. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be Jimbo. I don't think it's going to be Dabo or anything like that. And I think there's probably some huge names that we don't even know yet that Scott Woodward's working on just because he had a history of that. But, yeah, I think the people to really look at here are your James Franklins. Uh, I think you have to look at – you can't rule – I think Mel Tucker – I think there's a desire to at least give diversity candidates a strong look. I mean, obviously ones that are fully qualified, but James James Franklin and Mel Tucker are two people to really watch. And I think Scott Woodward likes Mel Tucker quite a bit. So I think that's something to really watch. But then you do have your um, your Mario Cristobal's or your, uh, your I mean, Lane Kiffin, somebody whose name gets thrown around this time. I was going to say, say his bit. name so the board doesn't yell at me. Yeah, his. I mean, I don't, as of now, I haven't really heard anything that is actually putting that together in any real way, but that has been a buzz name by a lot of kind of booster types here for a few weeks. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm not going to speculate on what he would or wouldn't do, but, uh, and I think, you know, you got to look, there's Billy Napier, of course, at, at UL, you know, I think Billy Napier is the kind of the guy who everyone agrees would make a ton of sense would be smart. He knows Louisiana. He's built a program sustainably and he has background under both Saban and Davo. You know, like he kind of checks the literal box of anything you would ever want a young up and coming coach to be because he's not inexperienced and, but he's, it's, it's a perfect little mix. Uh, but I think there's that element of, you know, is he ready to run an LSU? Is he, you know, is it weird to hire a Sunbelt coach for LSU? All that kind of stuff. I think so. I think he's absolutely on the list. I just think he's kind of further down it. So my guess is it ends up with one of those really big names we've mentioned, you know, whether it be a, a Franklin or a Lane or a, or a, even a, and Tucker's not necessarily bigger, but I think he's somebody right now. There's a lot of buzz around. He is Brody Miller at Brody A. Miller on Twitter. Uh, go read his work at The Athletic. I know I messaged you this on Sunday, but, man, it really was terrific stuff from the t- Kentucky column all the way up kind of to the finish of this thing with that Sunday story. It was fantastic work. The storytelling combined with the kind of threaded in with the reporting was really, truly incredible stuff. If you're not subscribed to The Athletic, if you're not reading it, you're missing out. Uh, please continue the great work. Congrats on your book deal in a decade that hasn't happened yet. That's me throwing out a take there. Um, I better get a signed copy. I appreciate it, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the kind words, and I always, I always enjoy coming on, man. And uh, you take care. Hopefully, I see you this weekend. And that was Brody Miller. I really, really appreciate his time. As always, I know he's busy, and he was very generous, and I thought offered some great insight into what is a very fascinating, intriguing, and there's an element of sadness in this story as well. I think, as we outlined, I don't necessarily expect anyone to feel badly for Ed Orgeron, but there is a sadness about just a guy succumbing to his flaws and kind of losing his way after something happened in his personal life and really losing everything except for a uh, having a lot of money in his bank account. So anyway, I thought that was a really, really interesting interview. I hope you did too. That's our show. We're going to be back on Friday. I'm working on having an LSU related guest. Doesn't always work out. If not, we'll uh, probably do some preview stuff with Weldon. And then of course the uh, fresh cuts picks with Greg. So that's our show for today. Thanks for making it to the end. Thanks for listening uh, to the Rippy Rides podcast. I've really enjoyed seeing this thing grow and interacting with you guys along the way. Enjoy your week, and we'll be back on Friday.